So uh, I, uh, I used to, uh, it wasn't all that long ago, maybe five years ago, I, I used to practice judo, martial art form. Many of you would probably have at least some level of familiarity with it. Um, I was actually an Olympic hopeful. My sensei, why, why would you laugh? Why, why would you laugh? Um, that's rude. My, uh, my, my sensei also would have laughed had he known. Um, was a very, I was a very aggressive white belt in judo, and I could, uh, I could see my future laid out before me until within my first year of, uh, of practicing, I had a very unfortunate ACL injury that took me out and changed the course of my life and, and all else. Um, it, it, was, it was a really fun sport. Um, I can say this because my wife isn't in this service, but I would like to get back into judo at some point in time. Um, I don't think she wants to see me laid up for another year from an ACL injury, but uh, maybe we'll see. We'll see what happens with the future. But uh, it, it is a very fun sport. One of the things that was particularly frustrating about judo is, um, unlike, unlike with normal wrestling where the pins are actually quite fast, in judo the, the pins are actually, it's, it's a very slow pin. It's about a 20-second pin. So, so you're, you're pinned down. Uh, the, the match ends once you're pinned down and held there for 20 seconds. So, I mean, if you're good, then that's an opportunity because then you can escape and you can figure out how to get out. Um, if you're more like me, then you just kind of wiggle on the ground for 20 seconds in shame. Um, but uh, So uh, one way that you can get through a pin more quickly, though, is if you put the if you, if you put your opponent in a submission hold. If you put your uh, your opponent in a submission hold, so there's several different ways to do submission holds. You can do some kind of a joint submission where it's okay. You have to tap out, or you're going to tear my arm off. That that would be one form of submission hold. Um, as a white belt, I wasn't actually even allowed to do that one, nor was that allowed to happen to me. Um, but the submissions that I was allowed to do was choke holds. Um, as a white belt, I was allowed to do chokeholds. So I, I became kind of a one-trick pony. Um, anytime I had an opportunity to get my opponent, it was immediately a chokehold. Um, and, and so the frustrating thing about chokeholds is, so, so, so they get you on the ground, they're choking you out, and then you have the choice of either tapping out because you don't want to go unconscious or die, um, or, 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 or you can continue on for 20 seconds if you think you can maintain your consciousness. Because possibly... Maybe just possibly you might be able to get out of that chokehold. So especially especially when I was brand new to the sport of judo, um, it was a very scary thing to be put into a chokehold. It was terrifying. All of a sudden you would have someone like strangling you. You you can't breathe the way that you're supposed to. You might be able to get in a little bit of air, but it's not the way that you're supposed to. And it's easy in those moments to just all of a sudden go into panic mode where you're not really thinking. You don't really, and and then either you tap out really quickly or, uh, again, you just kind of flail on the ground. Um, but the longer that I did judo, mind you, I only did it for about a year, so we're not talking like a great, like, Whatever. Um, the longer that I did judo, the more I became comfortable. This probably isn't a good thing. The more I became comfortable with being choked out. Um, the, the, the more, the more it, it was. Yeah, I know, I know. That doesn't speak positively of me. Um, but the more I became comfortable with it, the more I was able to think through it. The more I was able to think through. Okay, so I'm currently being choked out. I can remain calm in this, and I can begin thinking: How can I get out of this hold? And that was a significant transition point to go from flailing and not knowing what to do and re- reacting out of panic, 
when you're put into the submission hold to all of a sudden now being able to think with some clarity, how can I use this to my advantage? How can I strategically use this to actually maybe even get one up on the person who now thinks that they have me, but maybe they don't really? So submission holds actually came to the point where I saw them as a form of strategy and actually a form of opportunity. Submission is a tricky thing like that. I I don't think too many people like submission holds, nor for that matter, submission in general. Submission isn't one of those topics that most of us get really excited about. Like, yes, let's submit. That's fun. That's great. Let's do that. Sign me up. Um, but that, that's exactly what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at submission. We're going to look at what it looks like for, for, the Christian, for the Christian to relate to our authorities, those who are over us. Again, especially looking at this past year, year and a half, right? So many questions have come up, so many struggles, so many trials. As, as, we, have, as we have prayed, as we have wrestled through what it looks like what it looks like for a Christian to respond to those who are over us. So I can't think of a much more pertinent message this morning than what exactly Christian submission to authorities looks like. So we're going we're gonna to continue on in the book of 1 Peter. We're going to continue on in our, book of, in our series on 1 Peter. Peter wrote to the Christians throughout Asia Minor, which for us would be modern-day Turkey, Encouraging them in the midst of their exile in a culture that oppressed them and persecuted them to continue on firm in the faith. Peter reminded these believers of the future hope that they long for and for their new identity in Christ. And now today we come to the point in 1 Peter's letter where we see a significant transition happening away from future hope and identity to now, how do we live out of that identity? So, so the rest of the book of First Peter is going to be focused on, okay, how now shall we live? What do we do with this? What do we do with everything that Pastor Jason has been unpacking so far as we've been working our way through First Peter? How does that affect our life here and now in a hostile world? Our passage today, then, will look specifically at how we live under um, in submission to earthly authorities. So again, go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25 today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. I'm going to read our passage. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it for what credit is it if 
when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your word. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of, even in the midst of this world, even in the midst of uncertainty, even when we don't know what we are called to do, Father, I thank you that you speak clearly. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you that you have given us your spirit to help us to understand and to help to apply your word to our lives. God, I pray that you would just be active this morning in our midst. Father, that as we look into your word, God, that you would give us a more exalted understanding of who you are. Father, please work powerfully this morning. Please speak into our hearts, God, and please show us your glory. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So as we jump into our passage this morning, beginning in verse 11, Peter begins by urging these believers, these believers to live out of their new identity as, as our text says, sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. But what does that mean to be a sojourner in exile? Well, Peter's already used the language of exile even previously in our book. If we go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we're described as elect exiles there. Exiles meaning people who are residing in a land that is outside of their homeland, right? We're residing in a foreign land. It's, it's outside of our homeland with no intention of becoming permanent residents or citizens in the land. So in 1 Peter 1, 1, it's probably not, it probably shouldn't be taken overly literally because it was not uncommon in the first century world for people to be living outside of their homeland. So even back in 1, 1, there's probably a deeper meaning when, uh, when Peter refers to those Christians as being exiles. And then he brings it up again in chapter 1, verse 17, where they are told to live appropriately as exiles. In other words, because you're an exile, there's a right way now to live as exiles in the world. And then we come back to our passage. And here they're referred to not only as exiles, but also sojourners. Sojourners, which is very similar to exile. Referring to someone who lives outside of their country of birth and enjoying some of the same rights and privileges of a full citizen, though without actually becoming a full citizen. So these, these two words, exile and sojourner, are very similar to one another, very similar meaning. Now, the funny thing is, is this expression, exile and sojourner, this is, or sojourner and exile, this is actually used of Abraham back in Genesis 23.4. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, I mean, it actually uses the exact same language. Genesis 23, verse 4, as Abraham is, did I say Moses? As Abraham is wandering through the land, he refers to himself, he says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner. 
Again, same words, sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for buying a place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And then the exact same expression is used in the book of Psalms. In Psalm 39, verse 12, where the psalmist writes, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you and a guest. Again, exact same words in the Greek version of the Old Testament. For I am a sojourner with you and a guest like all my fathers. So both passages then, referring to the speaker's temporary status. Abraham was en route. He was en route for a land that he had never seen, for a promised land, for a promised land that he would never actually know the fruit of. Actually, interestingly enough, in the one passage we just looked at, it's the only time that he gets a small sliver of the land that was promised to him. Uh, He bought it for a burial place for his wife. Um, That's the only time during his life when he would actually see any fulfillment of the land promise that God had given to him. For the psalmist, they're talking about their temporary status in their world, meaning their mortality. Both of these aspects then are picked up both in Hebrews chapter 11 and here. We are only temporary residents here. We are only temporary residents in this world because we, we, we have a promise of another land, of a distant, far better land that we wait for in hope and anticipation. A land that we haven't seen yet, but we've heard tales of, we've heard rumors of. We, 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 we caught a brief glimpse of it in the gospel. And even now the Spirit is at work within our hearts, putting an ache, a homesickness for that land. Because we are sojourners and exiles in this world. We are sojourners longing for the shores of a country that we have never seen but we know that it's coming. It's coming. And because you are a citizen of another land, the principles of this world don't apply in the same way to you. Because our citizenship is held someplace else, our our current living situation has changed. Verse 16 tells us that you are free. That same point is reaffirmed by, by Jesus. Back in Matthew 17, 26, where he declares then that the sons are free. And then he, he proclaimed it again in John eight thirty six. If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Paul said very similarly in Galatians 5, 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You were no longer slaves to this world. You are no longer slaves here. You have been set free, radically free. Many of you have probably heard of the expression diplomatic unity, right? There are those who currently reside in our country and in other countries around the world who because of their, because of their function, because of their job, they enjoy a status called diplomatic immunity where they, they, they are immune to the laws of the land that they are living in. They don't live under the same laws as us, though they live here. They live by a different set of rules. Now, If they were to transgress the laws here, though we couldn't do anything officially about it, we could go to their country, to their homeland, and their homeland actually could prosecute them. Their their homeland could even release them to our laws if their homeland so so choose to do that. But in general, they enjoy a status called diplomatic immunity, and that is very similar to our status here because we are free. 
Our citizenship is in another land. It's in another far-off country, and we long for that land. So we are free. We are gloriously free. We're not creatures of this age. We're creatures of another age yet to come that we're waiting for. And we're in a world that reflects our old slavery, our old selves. But we're on pilgrimage. We're on pilgrimage. We, we, we can slough off the restra- our restraints and we can boldly step forward in freedom. And because we're free, and because of our status as free, we can submit. Because we are free, we can submit. That's Paul's point here in verse 13. But I, I don't get it. It seems like Paul just got done telling us the exact opposite. If we're free, we don't submit, right? Don't those two things collide with one another? Aren't those two things at odds with one another? Verse 13, Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human, every human institution. Be subject, meaning, meaning respectfully obey. Who are we supposed to respectfully obey? All earthly authorities. Verse 13 goes on to spell out various earthly authorities. He, he lists their emperors. He lists governors. And then this is interesting. If you skip down to verse 18, to the next paragraph, if you're looking at the ESV, if you skip down to verse 18, there we have a section addressed specifically to slaves who are called to submit even to their earthly masters. Now, uh, it's probably reason just to pause there for a minute and to address slaves being addressed in Scripture. Uh, It might be a little bit startling if you're not familiar with your New Testament, if you're not familiar with this sort of conversation, to see slavery mentioned in the New Testament. Well, there's at least two things probably to nuance about this. The first thing is that the slavery that was happening in the first century world, the slavery that's being mentioned here, is not the same as the American slavery that happened in the 1700s, 1800s. Very, very different institutions. Very different institutions. So what Peter is saying here is not necessarily directly applicable to the slavery that happened in America, in early American history. Um, there are a number of differences. At least one difference is that, is that slavery in the first century world wasn't based on race. It wasn't a race-based slavery. Um, there were a whole host of, another, of other reasons. The second thing, and maybe even more important to our, our point, is it wasn't as universally bad in the first century world. In other words, people actually signed up for slavery because they saw opportunity in it. They saw opportunity to grow and opportunity to advance. They could actually receive education through through being slaves. um, It was not uncommon for doctors to be slaves and teachers to be slaves. So slaves could actually be quite well educated. It was opportunity for, uh, for, as I said, for more education. It was opportunity for training. It was opportunity for more socioeconomic stability. So it wasn't always a bad thing in the first century world. It was also far more common in the first century world. Um, It was estimated that about a quarter of the Roman Empire was slaves. So, So we're talking one in four people that you met in the ancient Roman world was a slave. So it wasn't always a bad thing. That said, it also wasn't always a good thing. We don't want a pendulum swing too far to the other side. It was it was more of a mixed bag. So, so then the second thing to note then about how the New Testament handles slavery is that New Testament authors, when they speak about slavery, they neither prohibit it nor do they endorse it. It's it's neither of those things. 
um, they were more functioned. The New Testament authors were more were more focused um, on teaching Christians, including slaves, how to respond in the midst of slavery in a distinctly Christian fashion. They were more interested in dealing with that issue. So as we then look at this passage, I'm going to collapse these two sections, submission to, submission to government and submission to slavery, in, or submission to masters, into two things, generally as submission to authorities. Um, doing it for two reasons. A, the slavery institution doesn't exist today, and B, really the principles that undergird both these sections, they overlap with one another so much. It's the same principles lying at root in both of these. So, so I'll be addressing both these at one time. All right, sorry, that was, that was a brief aside. Back to Peter's point. Back to Peter's point. Are we free or are we not? Are we free or are we not? Peter's not alone in affirming that Christians are supposed to submit. Paul affirmed the same back in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Titus 3, verses 1 to 2. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. In fact, Jesus notes similarly in the passage that we already cited back in Matthew 17, where he declares that the sons are free, where he declares that. He goes on to state that, therefore, pay your taxes to Rome. Be subject to the Roman Empire. And it's not because the Roman Empire was good. It's not because the Roman Empire were using those taxes for righteous things. Rather, it's because Jesus wanted his disciples to submit to authority. So as we look at the New Testament, Jesus' teachings and the apostles' writings, we get this consistent message that Christians are free, but that freedom, true biblical freedom, is about submission. We often envision freedom in terms of what, what I call libertine freedom. And what I, what I mean when I say libertine freedom is that, is that if I'm free, I can do whatever I want. I can go wherever I want. I can take whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. Right? And I think that's the way we often think of freedom. I can do whatever I want. It's a freedom from restrictions. But the problem is, is that's not a biblical freedom. That's not a biblical freedom. That doesn't even match up with what we experience in this life. Look, I could, I, I could walk over to this keyboard, right, because no one's going to stop me, and, and I could start punching keys, and I, I, I'm, I'm amazing at piano, so it wouldn't take long for all of you to leave because it would sound horrible and your ears would hurt. Um, but, but I have the freedom to do that. However, if we were to invite Chaz back up here and just invite her to play, she has a different sort of freedom. She could, she could play something that would be beautiful. We'd be mesmerized. We'd be in awe of it. We would say that that was beautiful music. It would be free. It would be free-flowing. She would be able to handle well because she knows the instrument well. That freedom that she experiences on the piano has come out of however many countless hours of practice and training and discipline, right? Two very different types of freedom. True freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. True freedom is the presence of the right sort of restrictions. And biblical freedom is a freedom of ability to pursue righteousness unhindered. True biblical freedom is about pursuing righteousness unhindered under the lead of a new master. Notice in verse 13, for the Lord's sake... 
our submission is always first and foremost to God. Our submission is always first and foremost to Him. Verse 15, if God wills it, secondarily, we submit to earthly authorities, to the authorities of this world. And that's a distant second place. And notice this isn't only to those authorities that we like or those that we believe make wise decisions or those that represent our Christian values. Verse 18 declares, even to the unjust authorities, even to the unjust. And this is echoed in the historical testimony of the early church. In the historical testimony which the church bore up under corrupt emperors and rulers seeking to honor despite their wantonness. Despite the things that they were doing, the church continued to bear faithfully. Now, many of you will be quick to point out the issue of civil disobedience. Civil disobedience refers to the Christian's obligation at times to disobey the authorities. There are times when the Christian must disobey the authorities out of, out of Christian conviction because the authorities are asking us to do something that is at odds with God's will and at odds with our faith. And so, and so it's true there are times when we have to rebel. There are times when we have to say no, absolutely. A classic example of this comes out of Acts chapter 5 where the apostles, the apostles are told not to evangelize. Stop telling people about Jesus. Stop telling them. And the way the apostles respond at the time is verse 41, or sorry, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. You can't put, you can't, you can't describe civil disobedience any more clearly. We must obey God rather than men. The consequence of that, well, actually it's funny. Peter declares that, and then, and then he immediately goes on to declare the gospel before this Jewish council, to which the Jewish council is in an uprage. They, they want to have them killed right there on the spot. They, they decide not to kill them, but rather they beat them. They beat them senseless. They send them on their way. And then verse 41 describes the apostles going away, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced in the midst of being abused by, by, by horrible leaders. They rejoiced in that. The thing that's most striking as we look at civil disobedience in the New Testament or in the Bible is really how rarely it happens. How rarely it happens in the midst of corruption. And, and secondarily, the demeanor of the believers when they engage in it the way they respond in the midst of civil disobedience with gentleness and respect. Certainly the default posture of the Christian is to obey and to seek the good of their leaders. Peter here provides four fundamentals throughout the rest of the passage on what our obedience to authorities looks like. What does our obedience to authorities look like? First, there's a mission. There's a purpose for obedience. Verse 15 for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I love the way Peter frames this, because he keeps coming back to our ultimate motivation, which is, which is first and foremost, God. Why are we willing to submit like this? Because it's God's will. And what is it that God wants ultimately from this? Why? To silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. In other words, as Christians, we will be falsely accused of weakness and even hatred. 
So our actions must be so above reproach that any accusations against us will ultimately fall short. Our, Our conduct should be so good and so holy and so righteous that any accusation is ultimately going to fail. Christian, when you disregard your leaders, when you disrespect them, when you ignore the laws, when you establish a bad testimony with others, when you do these things, it convinces the world that you are more concerned about your own interests than you are about the good of others. It convinces them that you are more concerned about yourself than your, remember we used the fancy word libertine freedom earlier. You're more concerned about that than you are about the good of others. We are called to submit to God's will to be a testimony to the world of good deeds. If you're spending your time speaking badly about your teacher or your coach or your boss or these people in your workplace or around these others, how in the world are you ever going to be able to go to these people later and tell them about Jesus and tell them about how amazing he is and tell them about how he changes lives? You can't have both. You have to choose. Are you going to honor and respect those who are in authority over you? Or are you going to disrespect them? Even at Jesus' trial, at the end of his life, as they were seeking to bring accusations against him, they were stumbling because they couldn't find anything. Right? They brought forth false testimonies, asking people to give witness to things that never actually even happened. And even there, in the midst of that trial, they knew that this wasn't legitimate. They had nothing to bring. Because Jesus had been so above reproach in all of his dealings, they had no genuine accusations to bring against him. Second, Peter describes the manner of how we should submit. He goes into more detail later on in the letter, but here he mentions in verse 16, which we already looked at, that we should submit as free. We aren't called to submission to authorities in fear and in subservience and in weakness. That's that's not what we're called to. We're called as free to submit. So our submission isn't feeble. It's not fearful. But it's with boldness and strength that we submit to authorities. This extends both to our our actions and to our words. This confidence and strength isn't based on the assumptions of the goodness of the people that we're submitting to. Rather, it's based on confidence in the God that we submit to. Because God is holy and good and just. Therefore, I can submit. In John 19.11, Jesus came before Pilate in the midst of his trial. He's about to be killed, and he declares to Pilate, You have no authority over me. You have no authority over me except what's from heaven above. Now Pilate's sitting there thinking, What are you talking about? I hold your life in my hands. But it's because Pilate couldn't see clearly. He couldn't see what Jesus saw. God was the one who was in authority. God was the one who was presiding. God was the one who was in control. God was the authority. And so because of that, Jesus was willing to continue to walk out these steps. This is the way that we should submit to authority. Not only that, but verse 17 tells us that we should submit with honor. We should submit with honor. We should treat all people with respect and dignity, regardless of whether or not they deserve it. You don't honor them, though, when you make fun of them 
or when you ridicule them. This doesn't mean you have to agree with everyone, but there is a right way to show respect to them. If I, if I disagree with my wife, I'm not going to take to social media and mock her there, right? That's not the way we show honor or respect, or at, least, or at least maybe beginning next week, I'll stop doing that. That's not the way we show honor and respect to people, right? It's okay to disagree with those who are in authority, but there is a right way to honor and respect them. Third, Peter provides us with motivation. Verse 19 is kind of, it's, it's a difficult passage to translate, in the, to translate because there's a lot of ambiguity in the Greek. So uh, I'm looking at a couple of different translations here. Our ESV, the one that we're utilizing this morning, it, it translates the expression as, for this is a gracious thing. Again, that's a tricky expression, though, and it's it's hard to even know exactly what that would be referring to. The NIV translates it as, it is commendable. Um, And and I I like these latter two even more. The NET, the New English translation, translates it as, this finds God's favor. And the CSB translates it as, it brings favor. I think those provide a little more clarity than the ESV. I believe Peter here is probably envisioning rewards for faithfulness. Rewards for faithfulness. As one endures in the midst of trial, one major motivation is the promise of future reward that God will, get, God will grant us. This uses a lot of the same language. This passage here uses a lot, uses a lot of the same language that we see in Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 35. There, Jesus speaks of the same, uh, of the same kind of language running parallel with a lot of the same meaning of this passage. There, he declares that there is a, we are called to love one another's enemies, but there is no benefit, there's no credit when you love those who do good for you, when you love those who love you. But when you love those who are not good to you, when you love those who are your enemy, your reward will be great. I believe that's Peter's point here. There's no credit when you're reprimanded for doing evil and for doing wrong. But for those who honor their leader, even in the midst of unjust sufferings, there's great reward. This promise of reward, a promise of a future that we have to look forward to, should motivate us. It should compel us. It should excite us. But there's another motivation. So so there's the motivation of reward But there's an even bigger motivation. It's maybe a little less explicit, but it's certainly here. And that greater motivation is God. God. God is our greatest motivation. I've already noted it, but more than anything else, our submission to authorities is primarily about Him. Verse 13, it's for His sake. Verse 14, these governors are established by Him. Verse 16, we are servants of God. Verse 17, fear God. Verse 19, we are to be mindful of God. All of this from beginning to end is about submission to Him for God's glory so that much would be made of Him. So, so here's the deal then. As we wrestle with whether or not to obey and to submit to those who are over us, to our earthly authorities, the question isn't first and foremost about them. And it's definitely, it's definitely not first and foremost about us. The question ultimately is a question about Him. It's about Him. It's about God's glory. And this isn't at odds with our, motiva- with our prior motivation, the motivation of reward. His glory and our reward aren't at odds with one another. 
the greatest reward, the greatest reward that we could possibly have is to know God more, to enjoy Him more, and to see Him glorified more. There is no greater reward than that. That's the, that's the reward that should motivate our hearts, that should compel us, that should continue to persevere in the midst of the trials of this world because God is that glorious. That's the greatest reward. And at the same time, God is most glorified. God is made most of. God is most exemplified, most magnified when He is our greatest reward, when He is our greatest longing of our hearts, when when He is our everything, when we find our satisfaction in Him. So these two rewards aren't at odds. These two motivations aren't at odds with one another. They are one singular reward that we would one singular motivation, that, that we would long for this reward and that we would long for God to be made much of. These two work together in tandem with one another. But there's, there's one more. There's one more fundamental ingredient that I haven't listed. It, it, it's kind of two, kind of one. I wasn't sure how to number it. But there's one more. I like the number four better than five. Um, that fourth ingredient, that fourth fundamental is Christ. It's Christ. Verses 21 to 25 take an abrupt turn from our conversation, from our conversation about Christian and authorities. Why? Why is there a turn here all of a sudden to Christ and to what he's done? Well, it's because verse 21, Christ is the ultimate model for us. He is the ultimate model. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So, so just as Christ suffered, just as Christ suffered injustice, we should expect the same and we should respond similarly. We should follow in the steps of Christ and respond like he did. Peter interweaves throughout this section Isaiah 53, describing, it, describing Jesus' trials. In the midst of his trials, he didn't sin with his mouth. Rather, he trusted the Father in the midst of, in the midst of everything that happened to him thus providing us a model that summarizes everything that we've seen so far. When we submit to our authorities like all of this, we're really following the example of Jesus. But Peter doesn't end there. So, 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 so we have a model in Christ, but he also presents us with a means in Christ because we can't do this on our own. In our sinfulness, we don't respond like Christ. I don't respond like him to the authorities the way that I should. I'll just, I, I, I don't respond to authorities like I should. I certainly don't fit the model of, that Christ has given us. We don't even do well when we're not being persecuted and when we're not going through trials. We don't even do well then. The kind of submission that we're talking about this morning is spirit wrought and Christ bought. It can only come from him. Verse 24, Christ bore our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus then... Jesus has paved a way for us, not only to redemption and the salvation of our souls, but also to righteous living. To righteous living. We, can, we can't do it on our own. We need Christ's righteousness and his work applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Your obedience to authorities then flows directly from your relationship to him. 
Your obedience to your earthly authorities flows directly from your relationship to him, the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Brothers and sisters, we, we live in a rebellious culture. We live in a rebellious culture that wants nothing to do with submission to authorities. We want nothing to do with it. We, we snub our noses at those who are older than us. We publicly mock leaders when we disagree with them. We readily break laws that are in place, both in our workplace and our schools on the road. Right? We wantonly break these rules. This applies to our political leaders This applies to our bosses. This applies to our parents. This applies to our teachers. All of those who God has placed over us. And we as Americans, it's built built into the very fabric of our identity. We love rebels. We write songs about rebels. We write write music about, about rebels and movies about them. We love them. They're great. They're so much fun. And in the midst of this, in the midst of our celebration of the rebel, it is easy to walk out the doors this morning and to forget and to ignore this passage, this crucial passage for us. It's easy to miss the significance of what Peter is doing here and how crucial this passage is. Because Peter Peter makes our submission to earthly authorities, he makes it into a gospel issue. He makes it into a gospel issue. He took it back to Isaiah 53 and the description that we see there of Christ and what Christ has accomplished. This is central to who we are as Christians. We cannot disregard leaders that we can see and yet still claim to follow a God that we can't. Those two things go together. If you cherish Christ and his example, you will long for God to be glorified and to be made much of. And then let people, and then let us be a people known for obedience and gentleness, for the respect that we show even when none is deserved. Even when none is deserved. So how, how, how do we go, how do we move forward with this? How do we move forward? If we're sitting here convicted, I haven't been obedient in the way. I haven't been submissive in the way that I am called to submit. What am I to do? Well, the first thing we've already talked about, the first thing is to lean into Christ. Lean into Christ. He is the one who has paved a way for you. It is only in the power of His Spirit that we can live submissive lives. Submissive lives that honor those who are over us. Submissive lives who, who, who the, that are willing to submit in joy like what the apostles demonstrated in Acts chapter 5. That is only by the work of the Spirit. So we lean into the gospel and what Christ has accomplished. Second, I encourage you to confess. Confess your sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest about the fact that we have not been submissive. We have not done what God has called us to do. And when I say confess, I don't, I don't mean come to your pastor and confess. I mean, first, go to God. Then, maybe, go to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Confess to them that you have fallen short and that we need change in our life. And third, pray. 
First Timothy 2, 1 to 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It is really hard to be praying for our leaders, to be genuinely lifting them up, and then to turn around and to mock them, and to turn around and to snub your nose at them, to turn around and disregard them. Pray for those who are over us. Peter helps to remind us that submission to our authorities is not a minor issue. It's a gospel issue. If we want to glorify God, if we want to drink deeply from His well, if we want to reflect our Savior, we must walk as He did. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord. I thank you for your word. God, I confess that I certainly have not been above reproach in this realm. And so, Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would continue to take these matters more seriously. Lord, that we would recognize the significance of these things in our lives, God, and that we would seek to live lives first and foremost submissive to you and to your will. God, that we would delight in you, that we would trust in you, that you would be everything, that you would be our first and greatest thought, that you would be our greatest desire, our greatest motivation, Father, that everything would come back and be about you. Father, please let your Spirit work powerfully in us to draw us to yourself and to live lives like Christ. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes out of Jude. If you would please stand. Verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.